We'll continue this morning looking at the Lord's Prayer, which is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. We pray in the preface to our Father in Heaven. We pray in the first petition that His name, right, His divine glory would be hallowed. And today we come to the second petition, Thy kingdom come. And there is a world of richness in those three words. We could easily stop and do a series on that. In one sense, they can be used to sum up the story of the Bible. If the goal of creation is that the name of God be hallowed, the means to that end is the kingdom coming. Jesus, you'll recall, made this theme, right? the kingdom of God, utterly central to his preaching, and indeed to his whole ministry. Right? What does he start his public ministry with? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the banner over his whole mission. You'll find references to the kingdom of heaven about 150 times in the New Testament. The gospel which Jesus preaches is called the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Even after his sufferings, he appears to the disciples for 40 days, we're told in Acts, speaking about the kingdom of God. Forty days! That ought to caution us about the theme. Like, the theme is a topic, apparently, which required a lot of time to unpack well. Jesus didn't say, hey, look, i, I got to talk to you about the kingdom of God. I can sum it up in four or five sentences for you. He spent 40, day, 40 post-resurrection days with that as his daily theme, slowly unpacking it for the apostles. So we, too, here are given an opportunity to stop and to pause and to ask ourselves. Because I don't think it gets asked enough. Just what is this mystery of the kingdom? The kingdom is a lot like the word covenant in reform circles. People use it promiscuously, but they never stop really to crisply deal with it or to define it. And so you just get a lot of slop out there that's like, ah, it's half right, you know. Just what is the mystery of the kingdom if Jesus spent 40 days on it? We have an opportunity, right, to let Scripture speak and shape us, and more importantly, shape our praying. Because that's what the Lord's Prayer is about, shaping our praying. So we'll make three points. They're there on your outline in the back of the bulletin. There'll be a couple sub-points along the way. I'm sure you're excited about that, all of you sub-point fans. Uh, But there'll be three main points. Why, what, and when. Why, what, and when. In other words, why the kingdom? What is the kingdom? When does the kingdom come? So first then, why the kingdom? This is often a question which doesn't even get asked. 
But it is asked and answered in our, our catechisms. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 191, right, the question is, what, what do we pray for in the second petition? And then it gives this long and marvelous answer, which begins like this. In the second petition, which is, thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan be destroyed. So, there's a second kingdom. There's another kingdom, another dominion, another realm. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom into which all men are born. Paul calls this the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the king or the prince of the power of the air. The catechism says it's a dominion of sin. It's a dominion of Satan. Sin itself in the Bible is often depicted not merely as lawlessness, right, law-breaking. Sin is a dominion. It's a power. It's a principality. It's a cruel, enslaving master. And it's a dominion which we are naturally under. And Satan, though defeated by Christ's cross, still prowls around seeking someone to destroy. He still has a realm. He still has a kingdom, illegitimate though it is. A kingdom under which the vast majority of humanity has lived and still lives. For the God of this world, Paul says, blinds the minds of the unbelieving. It's interesting, right? Paul calls Satan the God of this world after the ascension. After the coming of the Spirit. The whole world, John tells us in his epistle... The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Though defeated, the evil one still holds devastating sway. And it is this backdrop, dark and foreboding, of being arrayed against another kingdom of supernatural intelligences, a hostile kingdom which places Christian existence into a theater of both danger and constant spiritual warfare. Because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, with mere human beings, but with something much more malicious, these principalities and powers in the heavenly places. With the power of sin as a dominion in our own members. And it's because, precisely because, we seek the full, final, and complete obliteration of sin and these powers. We seek the destruction of this hostile kingdom. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come. Because these kingdoms are in conflict. A conflict felt in our members, felt in our churches, and felt in the world. It's because of this theater that we are in that we pray, thy kingdom come. That's why we pray this prayer. Secondly then, what? What is the kingdom of God? In one sense, this is a puzzling petition, is it not? Thy kingdom come? Because isn't God already king? I mean, isn't everything already under his dominion? 
Has he not been reigning over all from the beginning? Do not the Psalms tell us God is king and his dominion rules over all? Even before Christ ascended, God was king over all. His dominion was over all. He ruled over all things. So what are we praying for exactly? Of course, the answer to all this is yes, of course. God has ruled from the beginning over everything. So there's this question then. What, what, what are we asking? And here we must make a basic distinction made by the church through the ages based on a careful reading of Scripture. When we speak of the kingdom of God, we have to distinguish between reign and realm. Now, I'm going to make a few distinctions, but remember, Jesus took 40 days to unpack this. So I'm guessing he made a few distinctions. We have to make this distinction between reign and realm. God reigns over all, period. But not all that he reigns over is a holy, consecrated realm. Right? The dominion of sin and Satan is not a holy, consecrated realm. God reigns over it, but it is not a holy, consecrated realm. Another way to put it is, not all that he reigns over is sanctified by the glory of his saving presence. God reigns over you and your house, and he reigns over your unbelieving neighbor and their house, but he does so in two different ways, or or in a way that's distinct. So you might have an earthly king. He reigns over the whole nation. Yet there are pockets of the nation that don't abide his rule or his laws. They may even be in open defiance. So it is here. There's a whole hostile kingdom. Think about this. God reigned over all the nations during the Old Testament, right? He reigned over China. He reigned over India, even though they weren't nations as such, perhaps then. But only Israel, only Israel was a holy theocratic realm, the special dwelling place of God's presence in the midst of his people. Right? The holy realm is a unique, consecrated, saving manifestation of the reign of God. And it is that which we are praying for here. It's really key to get this, right? I think we all may sort of know it instinctively, but it's important to articulate. We are praying for God's saving reign to break into the world and to consecrate it as his holy realm. That's what we're praying for. So the kingdom here, D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, says the kingdom here, meaning in the Lord's Prayer, is that aspect of God's kingship under which there is life. Right, that's another way to put it. That aspect of God's sovereignty under which there is spiritual life. Here's John Calvin on this petition. He says this. He says, we must first make sure of the definition of the kingdom of God. Now, that's very true. We must first make sure of the definition. He says, he is said to be reigning over men when they subdue their flesh to his yoke and their desires are laid aside so that they willingly bind and give themselves over to his rule. So again, Jesus reigns over all, but the kingdom in the sense being spoken of here is the place or the realm where he savingly rules. 
So that is what the kingdom is. And now that we know that, we can ask some other questions. Like, who's in the kingdom? And where is the kingdom? These are the sub-points under the second point. So first, who's in the kingdom? Well, well, if the kingdom is the realm over which Christ sovereignly rules, this means the kingdom is the realm of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the power of the age to come. Right? The kingdom is the realm of eschatological life. The kingdom is the presence of the new creation. The kingdom is the presence of the future. The kingdom of God, Paul tells us, Romans 14, is righteousness, peace, and joy where? In the Holy Spirit. This is just exactly what Jesus taught about the kingdom when he said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, born of the Spirit from above, by the Spirit, unless you are born again, you cannot enter or even see the kingdom of God. Nothing that can't be born again is in the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the realm of the regenerate. It is the place where God rules by word and spirit. In short, in short, the church is the kingdom of God. In the sense that's in view in our text, in our petition. This, by the way, is confessional reform theology. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, the chapter on the church says this. That the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty straightforward, right? It's not part of the kingdom. It is the kingdom. It's the house and the family of God. How could it be otherwise? The kingdom of God is life in the spirit. Who is in the kingdom? Believers born of the spirit. What does Jesus give to the church when he's on earth? The keys of the kingdom. So what is the church? The church is the domain of the the kingdom. The church opens the kingdom up. People come into the church. The the church closes. People are excluded from the the realm of the kingdom. The church is a consecrated holy realm in the earth. The church is the kingdom of God. This theme is obvious in the New Testament. Peter, for example, says that God has made us a kingdom of priests. John in Revelation 1 says he made us a kingdom. Out of all the kingdoms in the world, he gathers a holy kingdom. He made us priests to his God and Father. Revelation 5, you purchased people for God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and you made them a kingdom. So that's who's in the kingdom. Now we know why we pray for the kingdom to come. We know what it is. We know who's in it. So the second sub-point then is where is it? Where is the kingdom of God? This one is easy. It's in the hearts of believers. It's in the invisible realm of the spirit. It's beyond the reach of the civil magistrate. It's even beyond the reach of the elders of the church in this sense. When asked by the Pharisees, 
When the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said this. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your midst. When the larger catechism says that in praying thy kingdom come, it says we pray that Christ would rule in our hearts here. The hearts of the saints are the seat, the seat of the kingdom of God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean the kingdom has no outward effects or no impact. That's not Jesus' point. But it does mean it's not the kind of visible kingdom that the Pharisees and the disciples and American Christians expect. Thus, this kingdom language is not referring to any earthly political kingdom. It's referring to you, the holy kingdom of God. Jesus' spiritual reign is not a kingdom of this world. If you want to see it, and you want to taste it, we have to have the eyes of faith. He's already told us, you can find it among the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can find it among the meek. You can find it among the dispossessed, and the powerless, and the slandered, and the persecuted. Right? Blessed are the persecuted, and the slandered for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's found where the fruits of the Spirit are. It's found where the life of the beatitude is being lived. This is, of course, a commonplace. Let me quote you from the great Alexandrian uh, biblical uh, scholar of the third century origin. He says this. He says, the one who prays for the coming kingdom of God rightly prays that the kingdom of God might be established in himself, that it might bear fruit and be perfected in himself. Every saint being ruled by God as king dwells within this kingdom. We need a lot more passion on the kingdom being established and perfected and bearing fruit in us and a lot less politicized chatter about the kingdom being established elsewhere in those other people. Right? To be passionate about the kingdom of God in a rightly ordered way is to be passionate about the fruits of the Spirit in the depth of our own hearts. Right? To be passionate about the kingdom is to be passionate about gentleness, patience, faithfulness, self-control. Why? Why? Because the kingdom of God, to repeat, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is within you. Our third point, then, is when. When does the kingdom come, then? When does it come? Well, like everything else in the Christian life, it comes now and later. It comes in the already and it comes in the not yet. It comes when everything comes. That's how everything happens in the Christian life. These are not two separate things, by the way, like what happens now and then what happens later. Right? What happens now is just the leading edge of what's happening later. 
But the kingdom has already come. It comes now. The kingdom has come in Jesus, right? And this means the kingdom of sin and Satan has already been plundered. It's already been dealt a fatal blow through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And though Satan continues his sway, he engages in these rear guard actions, he is doomed. Though he is dangerous, he's an already defeated foe. He can't stop or thwart the gathering of God's elect. Same thing with sin, right? Sin's already defeated, but we still struggle with it in this life. But its dominion is broken. Not obliterated, but broken. So the kingdom has come. There's been a decisive victory of Jesus Christ. He's invaded the realm of the ruler of this world, he says. Bound him, cast him out. And what does this mean? This means people have been and are being summoned out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? Through the gospel, God is summoning people out of this other hostile dominion into the holy nation, into the kingdom of God. And thus, we pray for the church to increase in the world. Right? In the words of the larger catechism, which I've already cited a couple times, And this is beautiful. It says, when we pray for the kingdom to come, we pray for this. Listen to how comprehensive this is. We pray for the gospel to be propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of Gentiles to be brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. Purged from corruption. Countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrates. And it continues, we pray about the word and sacrament. It says, we pray that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed, that they might be made effectual to convert those that are yet in their sins, and that they might confirm and comfort and build up those who are already converted. I highly commend to you Westminster Larger Catechism, question 191, if you're interested in this. But the whole prayer, it says, is about the prosperity and the well-being, the purity and the growth of the church. Because the church is the kingdom. The church has the keys of the kingdom. That's why the answer to thy kingdom come in question 191, every proposition is about the church. This is what our shorter catechism calls the kingdom of grace. The kingdom of grace. And we also pray, the larger catechism goes on, that Christ would hasten, quicken, the time of his second coming. Right? These are not two separate prayers, right? Like, we hope all this other stuff goes on for a million years, and then at some point at the end. No, we're praying for one thing to happen. We're praying for him to hasten his second coming and are reigning with him forever. We pray, the catechism says, that the kingdom of grace would give way to the kingdom of glory. And that brings me to this later aspect, the not yet. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here, by the way. If you look at these references to the kingdom of God in the New Testament, I said there's about 150 of them. There's about a hundred of them where the kingdom is already and not yet. But there's about 50 of them 
where the kingdom of God just flatly refers to the future, period. The eschaton, the end. In fact, when Jesus institutes that supper, which we're about to celebrate, when he institutes that supper, it is itself a pointer to the eschatological feast. He says, I will not eat it or drink it until all is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That points to the kingdom future. He tells the apostles they will eat and drink at his table in his kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? He says in Matthew that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast. The feast which that anticipates with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. All of these references to the kingdom are exclusively future. The Eucharist points us to that, to the kingdom of glory. So to be citizens of the kingdom is to share in Christ's rule. To be a citizen of the kingdom is to share in the rule of Christ, now in weakness, now in suffering, now by the way of the cross, later in splendor and glory. Now the cross, later the crown. Thus Paul. Notice the the ruling language here. Paul says, There is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day, not to me only, but to all who have longed for his appearing. That's when you get the crown. John tells the churches in Revelation, To the one who is victorious, I will give him the right to sit on my throne, even as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. When the chief shepherd appears, Peter says, faithful shepherds will receive the crown of glory, which will never fade away. Crowns are for kings. right? They're for kings, members of the kingdom. Crown language in the New Testament is language of the future, of the kingdom of glory. And we are to pray for the propagation of the gospel, for the prosperity of the church, and for this kingdom of glory to be hastened. The appearing of Jesus, the kingdom in its fullness, is at the heart of the prayer. We aspire to this because we love Christ and we want to see his face. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. The king sits on his throne, that's when the king, and administers judgment to the nations, That's when the kingdom has appeared in full finality. So to pray for the kingdom is to pray for what the church has historically called the beatific vision. The day when all is well. The day when the past is rectified and healed. The day when saints behold their Lord in face-to-face splendor, in the fullness of untainted joy. The day when his name is upon us. We see his face and his name is upon us. This is why we want the kingdom to come. To pray thy kingdom come is to pray, come Lord Jesus. So again, while we speak of two phases and an already and a not yet, it's important to remember there's one kingdom. There's one realm of the spirit. And to yearn for it is to yearn for the whole enchilada or to not yearn for it at all. I mean, after all, we're not really interested in mere incremental changes. 
right? We want the holy realm of heaven to be projected over all the earth. Not some of the earth, not most of the earth. All of the earth, every nook and cranny of every human being that's ever lived and every molecule that's ever been created, we want raised in immortal glory and splendor, judged, healed, reconciled. That's what we want. That's the vision. We want the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness and nothing but righteousness dwells. Again, listen to Calvin on this. He says, as far as iniquity holds the world in sway, so far is the kingdom of God absent. In other words, if sin exists in the world, to the extent that it does, the kingdom is absent. But then notice what Calvin says after this. He says, for complete righteousness must come in its train. This vision is so astoundingly large, I don't think we grasp it. Right? You could convert every single person who ever lived from this moment onward for the rest of human history, and not even approach the grandeur of this vision. Because you wouldn't have dealt with the hundreds of billions and tens of billions of people who lived in the past. We want the whole cosmos transfigured and filled with the splendor of God's glory. And all other aims or goals, they just look like squalor. They're just paltry. Who's going to speak for, for the millions and millions of people who have not had justice done or righteousness done for them. Right? Mao's victims and Stalin's victims and Hitler's victims, and we could go on and on and on. When do they get justice and righteousness and peace and joy? We want all of that. We're praying for the church to prosper and flourish, but we're praying at the same time, in the same petition for the Lord to be hastened in his appearing. Because when the kingdom of God appears, complete righteousness must come in its train. To seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness is to groan for glory, for the obliteration of all evil, past and present. But we don't even get the tangles in our own lives sorted out before we die. If we pray for the kingdom and we seek this kingdom, we will find ourselves with the ancient church crying out for the king himself. You can't have the kingdom without the king. If you want the kingdom in fullness, you want the king in fullness. And when we cry out for the king himself, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And in history, the spirit and the bride say, come. Amen.